0: You already know that Illegal Pete's makes delicious, mission-style Mexican food.
1: But did you know that Illegal Pete's uses its marketing funds to support Colorado creative talent that we love?
0: We support the Denver Diatribe Podcast, the Grolix Comedy Showcase, Rocky Mountain Roller Girls, the Yellow Designs BMX Stunt Team, Apex Movement Parkour Team, the Underground Music Showcase, and more.
1: We even have our own record label, The Greater Than Collective, with albums by The Epilogues, Snake Rattle Rattle Snake, Esme Patterson, Ian Cook, and comedian Ben Roy. And a starving artist program that feeds out-of-town bands traveling in Colorado for free.
0: Illegal Pete's. We're more than just a restaurant.
1: So, let us put our food
0: and music
1: and comedy
0: and sports
1: inside you, please. please. Denver, Denver, I'm from Denver, 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 i Denver, 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 I'm from Denver, Denver,
0: hello and welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a weekly podcast of news, culture, and stuff as it pertains to Denver, Colorado city with the best rump roast between Miami Beach and Muscle Beach. I'm Josh Johnson. <laughs> Joining me today at the D&H Clock Tower on 16th Street Mall is co-host Ron Doyle. And we also have uh, Denver Meat Royalty. Our guest is Mark Donatis, the director of curriculum at Cook Street School of Culinary Arts and also from Rocky Mountain Institute of Meat. How's it going, fellas? Hey, what's going on? Pleasure to be here, guys. Thank it's you.
1: Great. I'm doing well. Hi. Hi. Th- Hi. Thanks for having us.
0: Yep. <laughs> Before we jump into a dialogue about butchery and bacon and all things meat related to Denver, let's cover some newsy bits. First one is about GMOs. At the end of February, Colorado legislature killed a proposal that would have required genetically engineered food to be labeled. The House committee shot down the proposal after five hours of testimony from mothers fearing the worst in food and farmers who called the measure an unreasonable burden. Um, 60 countries currently have laws requiring labeling Uh, and legislatures think this is a federal matter alaska has some labeling on uh
1: alaska does do do any other states have it
0: no just alaska and it's only on it's on fish and shellfish have to be labeled so
1: so why don't we why not is it just because then we would have to label everything because
0: yeah we would have to label everything because Mm -hmm.
1: because corn's sort of done corn is in everything, and now... And corn's GMO, right. And Mm -hmm. corn is... uh, It's almost pervasively
0: GMO. They should just already label. They should just put it on anything. Exactly.
1: So so basically, by not labeling, we're sort of admitting that it's already there. Well, I
0: think the thing is, is that if you go to, like, Vitamin Cottage and you get something that's non-GMO, they label it Mm non-GMO. So if you know... It's basically, it's instead of labeling that it is, we're doing it by default. So if it doesn't say non-GMO on it, it's GMO. Exactly. Right? Is GMO a bad thing? Are we being hysterical, Mark? What do you you think? know,
2: I'm not sure. There's, there's two sides to that fence, uh, really, um, from the GMO side um, and some of the testing that has gone on. And it's shown, you know, things in, in lab mice and in lab rats now. Obviously, we can't start testing on humans. Right. Um, but in essence, you know, is there unofficial testing going on? By gauging, you know, what communities are eating, because there's easily ways to track that, and right. seeing what um, illnesses or things along those lines uh, uh, are prominent within a certain community that has, you know, an influx of foods and food systems that are uh, raised uh, GMO. Mm-hmm. So unofficially. There could be technically testing going on, but nothing officially to really tell us and be right, able to right. gauge that. So it's always really hard. And, you know, on the farmer's end, you know, I can understand on some hands the extra uh, paperwork that might be involved and the extra steps in uh, adjusting those labels and making that dramatic change. And then from a, a large-scale manufacturer standpoint, you know, they look at it, well, what's that going to do to our sales? Having a GMO, this is a GMO labeled product. Now, what does that do in the supermarkets? How does that product, you know, uh, play out sitting on a shelf? Right. And the consumer is now aware of this stuff and consumers making choices. Wow, that could disrupt a billion, you know, billions of dollars of industry uh, weekly, daily, monthly, and things along those lines. So, um, at its core, On on one hand, I kind of get a little bit of the uh, BT corn side and the naturally occurring things of genetically altering that so that it naturally produces chemicals within its own cell structures to ward off the corn weevil as opposed to uh, natural crop rotation, which is really smart, you know, cycling crops. So you don't have that. You go from corn, then you go to soy, and then you go to alfalfa, and then you can come back to corn so you, you know, uh, can uh, address it in that fashion rather than through uh, bioengineering
1: or you know, traditional chemical method.
0: Right. Do you have anything to say? Mark? I'm all for it. Right? <laughs> Label? Not,
1: no, I don't care about the labeling. I'm all yeah. for GMO. I don't care. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Bring it on. I want, I want my chicken to glow want at your, night. Yeah. You want I, wanna, I want to be able to find my glow. I want glow-in-the-dark cheese Whiz. That's really <laughs> what I want. I want to be able to see the cheese Whiz while I'm... Putting it on my cracker in the that dark, might. watching uh, might, Battlestar it, Galactica. That's that would be a dream come true for it me. Totally caps off the recreational experience. <laughs> well, no, it's I don't. Funny. I haven't done that in years. It's just the crackers and the cheese whiz. They, it's they
0: medicinal, Mark. It's not recreational. <laughs> uh, it's okay. It's medicinal. So, sure,
1: well, I mean, <laughs> hearty har har. No, I, no, I, I really, I, I, I don't, I don't think, I think we've been genetically modifying. Uh, crops for such a long time anyway through through uh cro- breeding uh it, it's not really that big a deal i do understand people are freaked out and yeah mm-hmm. there's there's going to be some repercussions but right. i would rather we experiment with it and discover and then pull back than not than not do it it's and not, that's that's really me just sort of taking the the devil's advocacy uh i think there's prob- i mean there's, there's i don't certain- really want gmos
0: I mean, certainly there's, there's a possibility. It's probably a spectrum. There's probably some of it that doesn't matter at all, and then certain changes yeah. probably do matter. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's nearly as, as threatening as, as uh, antibiotics and hormones. No. You know? No, certainly not.
2: No. Hmm.
0: All right, we're going to move on because I'm really excited to talk about horse meat, but yeah. we, have, we have a topic <laughs> to get through before that. <laughs> um, this isn't, maybe we don't even need to discuss this, but March 8th, um, which is tomorrow in our time, Friday, March 8th, is the last day of the Denver Restaurant Week. Of course, this is where restaurants offer a multi-course meal for $52.80 for two people. So my question um, to Mark, I guess, is, is this a deal for restaurants, or is this a deal for the consumer? Do, I, do, do I, restaurants benefit from this? You
2: know, I, I think there's, there's two sides to that coin. And, and you know, um, I know a lot of the uh, chefs uh, of the uh, restaurants who are part of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, the the gamut of of opinions runs the spectrum. Um, for some, it's, it's, you know, they really don't see the value or benefit in doing that, especially, you know, two weeks a year. Right. Uh, on the other hand, some restaurants, especially some of the newer ones, um, it you know, it allows them to tap into a, a newer crowd. Where sure. they come for that one time, and that's kind of the concern is that, it, well, it's, you know, the people come... Come only for this week and they'll, we'll never see him again. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, at least you've gotten that, you've gotten that exposure. Um, and if you're a, you know, if you think critically as a chef and you plan your menu accordingly, I don't see it as a detriment. You know, Obviously, it, it takes planning to meet that cost right. uh, from a cost side and preparation right. side, you know, labor and, and sourcing the product and things along those lines to do a really nice menu that is reflective of that chef's philosophy and core values of what his food is to be um, without being a burden. So there's kind of two sides to that, and there's two camps. Uh, some sure. absolutely just loathe it because of the sheer volume. A, sure, because people are just
1: con- – like, people go rabid, <laughs> batshit crazy over yeah, this week. I do. I, I they don't do. – and I don't, I don't get it. Like mm-hmm. they, these people are going it, out – they're going out to eat anyway. A lot of the people that are going out for this, they're going out to eat anyway. Yeah. They're spending about $52.80 yep. on their their two-person meal. Yep. Anyhow, but then when – you add a special magical number to it and, and give it a name, mm-hmm. and then everybody's like, woo! I know people that book like seven or eight of these things. Right? Yeah. They're they're going every night of the week. They're going to a different restaurant, and I think that's just in, it's yeah. just insane, completely insane. I mean, hooray for <laughs> gluttony at is fine. Gluttony at is fine. Hooray, hooray for the restaurants <laughs> right. who are able to make it work. Yeah, exactly. And hooray for the restaurants that are getting noticed and getting right. people coming back. Yep. But. I, I know. I know. People like they will go and they'll they'll like take the original menu and they'll calculate. Uh, Am I getting a good deal on this or not? And oh, oh no, this place. Yeah. No, I could I could probably just eat there for that price anyway. I'm going to go to the place that's as swanky as possible.
0: Maybe restaurants should use this as a as a business model. Mm-hmm. Just have flat rates. I a mean, flat, there, there certainly yeah. are some that do it yeah. right. Like uh, what isn't? It yeah, per the pre se? the prefix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Prefix. Prefix menu. I think. Yeah, right. prefix
1: <laughs> menu. I think is awesome. I think that's fine. But, well, and then the other thing is, you were talking about how some restaurants are trying to do this as a way to uh, get themselves open uh, recognized. Mm-hmm. But now they've they've let in just any restaurant that wants to do this. Now that's the tough thing. For and now there there are what there are like 350 restaurants that are doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then yeah. you're if you are the restaurant that's trying to get noticed. You're just now. You're just one in hundreds. Exactly. There's no way you're going to get picked I, out. I think the biggest concern,
2: especially from the from the uh, uh, culinary community, uh, in particular chefs and, and general managers, owners, in that is that um, you know they're concerned because it's Denver Restaurant Week that it's it's you know it's unique to independent owners, not yes. big corporate chains. Um, and, you know, without naming some. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, Cheesecake, yeah. factory. Cheesecake Factory, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> I <hate that> <laughs> uh, Ocean Air, maybe, or some of those. Sure. Are, well, you know what? At the end of the day, business is business. Yeah. They're here in our community. Do you chastise them because they are part of a larger corporation? Um, you know, some say yes, some say no. Um, I, you know, I'm a big proponent of independent restaurants as as much as possible. Uh, I avoid chains at mostly all costs Mm -hmm. um, and support, you know, guys like chef Matt Selby now at the corner office. uh, Paul Riley, who's going to be opening up beast and bottle of course, Justin Brunson with old major and that, that, place is just killing it. And, you know, ve- longstanding independent restaurant owners like uh, Josh Walken with Steuben's and Ace and Vesta mm-hmm. and, you know, what Chef Dijinsky has done with Euclid and, and things along those lines and Bonanno with all of his, you know, outlets and areas and such. So um, and, and there's a lot of varying opinions about Restaurant Week among
1: those people. And, you know. And to be a complete hip- hypocrite, <clears throat> I'm going tonight. Oh, are you really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to the kitchen. It seems so. to
0: me Restaurant Week is kind of like a localized Groupon. It is. It is. It is. Is that really yeah. I
2: mean that's part of it too is is the general sense to some degree is that you know you you lessen the value of what that restaurant is trying to do right, but on the other hand, if you plan the menu right sure. then you're not really devaluing yourself sure. you're, you're providing a, a food product for this amount of money and mm-hmm. things like that. But then when you go to the chain, who's providing larger human, you know, inhumane American sized portions, <laughs> and then you're doing a 5280, 80, you know, smaller scale down menu that makes yeah. sense. So it's at least somewhat profitable. Um, then you get into that dynamic of, oh crap, you know, and,
1: and no, and, and either of you, for either of you, have you had the experience of going to one of the much, the higher end restaurants during restaurant week? <laughs> and then no. it's very clear they're <laughs> they, cutting they're this this uh this six ounce steak is maybe four ounces. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're they they're, they're they're trimming. They're, yeah. they're trimming off the edge. They're they're cutting it short. I I wonder I wonder how many people have to do that. I mean yeah. really, that's the risk you take. Exactly. You're you're going in for the deal. You don't know what you're going to get until you get there, right?
0: It's yeah. amateur week. Mm-hmm. And, well, that's a good yeah. That's a good
2: way to put it. And unfortunately. To some extent, even though those who participate, who maybe don't want to, unfortunately, that that you know feeling or sense transcends into the service. And as a guest going there, you can sense that waiter or server or bartender or what have you, maybe isn't quite as excited to, to have you there. Yeah, right, um, right, Support it, but at the end of the day, if you know, would they be doing that type of volume without it? And, and I mean, there's so many questions from from both sides of of that thought process.
0: Right. I should have probably made this topic one of the big topics. It's going to be a big topic. I, going to I can't imagine we're, anyway. going, to we're going to stop talking about it. We're not going to stop talking about it.
1: One of the things that they're not serving during, uh, during rest- restaurant yet. week. Yet. 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 So
0: horse meat, um, as we, <laughs> if, if you if you're, don't live in, you know, I don't know, the, a mountain town where they don't get radio or TV. Um, horse meat, Europe is freaking out about it because horse Mm -hmm. meat is showing up in, in meals there. Mm -hmm. However, on, on this side of the pond, the USDA is likely to approve a New Mexico horse slaughterhouse preparing Mm -hmm. meat for human consumption. Um...
1: In my hometown. In your hometown. In, in, in Roswell, New Mexico. Roswell, New Mexico. So that's one, my town loves controversy. That's
0: <laughs> one message that we have here in the U.S. is, like, USDA is going to approve it. It's legal. Mm-hmm. People are going to eat horse. And and then the other message that's being sent is, you'll recall, I think it was in September, we covered um, Tom Davis, who had bought, seven, like, 1,700 wild horses from BLM for, like, $10 a horse yeah and, and there were suspicion that he was selling them to Mexican slaughterhouses yes so the BLM's reaction to that very recently was they reined in their sales policy um, so there's some mixed messages being said here um, about horse meat right um. and so Mark you've your family used to serve you horse meat. Yeah, uh, my grandfather. Oh, yes! <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> my grandfather knew, a, knew guy a guy. He knew <laughs> a guy in Boston. I knew a guy. Who knew a guy? So he'd go up from Wista out to Boston. He'd go see a guy. He'd get, like, goat's heads and sheep's yeah, heads. And, awesome. and a, 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 you know, reddish, darker-than-beef-colored meat that uh, had a sweeter aroma and flavor. And it was um, turned into brichol, uh that cooked in the Sunday uh, sauce or gravy, whichever camp you're in on that. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know it was it was really not i don 't I don't think at the time I knew what it was, but you know I mean Europeans have been doing that for years there 's a lot of classical European foods that are, in essence, horse, and they not still the are today. Probably not the British. The British are freaking it's out. More, it's the British who are freaking oh, out. Oh, well, let them freak out. Yeah. Um, now, you know, in Germany and in, in Italy in particular, especially northern Italy, where there's some dry-cured meats that are still made from horse, mm-hmm. um, there's the classical German uh, Austrian dish, you know, sauerbraten, mm-hmm. uh, which was a, a long-marinated and then braised uh, horse, tough horse meat a hot, working muscle. Um, if you go back, um, again, to, to not quote, but 2006, I believe it was, maybe 2005. There were three plants in the United States in the, up by the Great Lakes region um, that were processing horse. Yeah. And it was for shipment to we were the largest exporter of horse meat um, in yeah. the globe.
0: Really? Oh, yeah. Where were we? Well, because we them? have the most
2: horses. Exactly. It was going okay. to overseas to Europe. Yeah. Um, probably Italy, Germany, maybe Spain. I'm not sure on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there came down some legislation where they, they went ahead and, and pulled the plug on that. That was and in two thousand and
0: seven yeah, because the, the article said that this is the first if if they, if the USDA approves this, it's going to be the first horse slaughterhouse since two thousand seven correct, so I'm assuming that
2: and they quietly pl- passed legislation about a year ago. No, you didn't hear much no. about it. you heard about uh, about shutting them down, but you didn't hear about the ad- administration approving it to go back up into up yeah in the they, process. They,
1: they let they let the the prior ban mm-hmm. expire in two thousand and eleven they mm-hmm. let it let it drop
2: exactly yeah. Um, and, and the downside of, of that was, you know, there's two things. You know, you, you make that decision to close down and, 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 and pass that through. You just destroy jobs, you know. Yeah, right. Because there's a, a – we've humanized here in the States. We've humanized animals. Um, I, I'm very respectful of animals across the board. Um, however, you know, thank you, Mr. Ed. Uh, you know, everybody's all freaking out about horse yeah. and, and things along those lines where it's been done for centuries. It's not a big deal. They're an animal. They're here for us to use respectfully and mindfully. Um, and I get, you know, the camp of, of the horse folks. I, I respect that very much because there's a, there's a connection that people make with those animals. Um, but, you know, you took away a bunch of jobs. And on the backside of that, now you had a an over- uh, uh, an overage of horses that were dialed in to go in there, now they're, they're stuck being dying and decrepit with no outlet or no positive outlet. And to compile that even further, so we've banned it here. Now we're shipping those horses across the border into a lot less unregulated uh, oh, territory, in Mexico, yeah. Mexico for processing, and who knows what could potentially happen down there. Um, so that, you know, that... Uh, I get a little frustrated at that, and I'm glad to see they're putting it back. I'm a little concerned why it was done so quietly, and there wasn't so much noise about uh, them allowing it again, Um, and I don't know if they're looking to process to ship over to Europe or they're actually considering on that plant in New Mexico uh, processing to uh, allow it for American.
1: Consumption, which that one, I, 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 I would assume, right. I would assume that it's going to be, it's going to be for export. export. Would you,
0: would you eat horse meat?
1: Would I eat horse meat? Yeah, I would yes. try it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would try it.
0: I yeah. eat it. I'm an equal opportunity carnivore. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, almost as a principle. I would, I, I would be a hypocrite to not exactly. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to eat a chicken, I'm going to eat a horse. Mm-hmm. I'm either going to be. Vegan. It, it is. It is awkward because or, you
1: know I grew. I, I grew up in a family that had a cattle ranch, and mm-hmm. and the horses were our friends, and the right. cows were the things we ate. Right. So right. so I do have I do have like an ethical. Uh, there there would be an ethical quandary in there, but th- to mm-hmm. be quite frank, I think that's something that uh, we need more often whenever we're eating meat in the first place. Mm-hmm. We yeah, should exactly. be considering what we're eating and the ethical ramifications of what we're doing every Certainly. single time we take a bite. Right. So uh, if horse meat's going to force me to do that, then I'm not am not opposed to it. Yeah. And I think more importantly that if it were to ever come to that,
2: I, I can't stress enough the importance of, of freedom of choice, you know. And if if I want to choose, you know, and a great example would be the whole foie gras thing. Yeah, uh, you know, I saw
0: a TED um, talk on foie gras. There's this great TED talk. You have to it's Oh about the
1: humane way of yeah, making them. Yeah, this guy
0: won the grand cru or whatever awesome. in France of this foie gras, and and he basically he doesn't what's it the force, force. feeding clu- called the, again the gro gru- uh the funneling. Yeah, the funneling. There's an
1: Yeah, where they where for they for nail their feet yeah. to the board this guy and funnel so food So
0: intimate there. with his with his geese <laughs> that he um he created an environment where they felt very comfortable and that he has like fig orchards and they eat they're allowed to eat whatever and what they do is they naturally engorge themselves mm-hmm. um before winter right so basically he would let them do this they would engorge themselves and their livers would expand and then he would um harvest them then yeah and then it, but then it wasn't the nice yellow color right. so he planted <laughs> he planted a uh a flower that they enjoyed eating that was yellow yeah, and it sure turned it yellow so and the sense. french were pissed <laughs> <laughs> they were pissed that this guy what? won. Why? Yeah, I, because he, they said it wasn't foie gras unless they were force-fed. That it, They said that it shouldn't have won best foie gras because it's not foie gras because it wasn't force-fed. Wow. Well, but it was the fact that he was Spanish and not French ah. was really the problem. <laughs> it came down politically. <laughs> anyway, yeah. there's a little – I hate sidetracks, but Certainly. there's the foie gras, right, mm-hmm. right.
1: No, it's, it's still, it's, a, it's very relevant. I mean, I think, I think it is going to, it's an ethical question for people whether mm-hmm. or not they're going to be comfortable with it. And right. here in the United States, even if there are uh, horse slaughter plants, because there were before mm-hmm. and we weren't eating horse meat. Exactly. Uh, it's because I, we don't have a taste for it and we don't consume it. Right. For, the same reason, for the same reasons why we don't consume a lot of things that Asian countries do in terms of yeah. certain types of fish or right. sure. certain ingredients. They're just not popular here, so right. we're not going to choose it. Uh, and for those folks who do, I, I mean, good on, good on them if they want to do it. It's their, it's their choice. They, right. they have to live with it. Mm-hmm. Right. But, and, and, and then meanwhile we do, we have like all these, all these extra horses sitting around, uh, and we don't know what to do with them. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Other than what we knew as
1: cartoons growing up,
2: the glue factory. Right. Yeah. yeah <laughs> send them right. right. to the glue factory.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Do we Turn, still, I mean, do they still make, uh, uh. Um, gelatin out of horse hooves? Is that it's usually name? out of pig? Yeah. Oh, it's out of pig. Yeah, usually it's usually out, out of pig. Yeah. Okay. But it used to be horse hooves, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of the things they used. Sure. Because vegans won't eat Jello. That's why vegans right? will not eat Jello because <laughs> it's made
1: from pig or horse. Yeah.
0: I would eat vegan. You would eat. You would, I would eat, eat a vegan. You would eat a vegan. Sweet. What do you think the best cut on a human would be? <laughs> uh,
2: the best cut. I think um,
0: I saw this on a survival show last mm-hmm. night, and I thought calf. That's what. I would go for as long
2: a as well, if it was if it was braised, a braised yeah, yeah because that's, that's a be tough pretty, working that'd muscle. Be pretty so tough intramuscular yeah, uh, right. uh, collagen in there and such that right. you need a slow, long.
0: I just think my loin's throat. Throat. too fatty. I don't yeah. think it's underdeveloped <laughs> and too fatty. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think I would have to look at the. Well, that specimen. would contribute
2: to a lot of flavor. The, the proper <laughs> yeah, right, marbleization right, right, of your yeah. lower <laughs> saddle area. Uh, <laughs> Right. Uh,
1: all right. all right. Yeah, no, we got to keep that. Ki- the, we'll, we'll, let's continue that conversation. <laughs> right.
0: Um, so that's it for the newsy bits. Listeners, if you ever want to share a news story with us, uh, rant about something we said, or shower us with gifts of horse meat, please leave <laughs> a comment on com, <laughs> like us on Facebook, or drop a line at 720-282-YELL. Moving along, we're going to keep talking about meat. Um, we've got Mark D'Nedis here with us. So, Mark, um, why don't you give us a little background on your on your meat pedigree? How did you? Oh gosh! Because you're you're, I mean you're a chef, but yes, but you have a somewhat of a butcher meat focus.
2: Uh, yes, it, um, I graduated culinary school in '92. Uh, went out into industry in hotel resorts, uh, private clubs. Uh, did a small guest ranch thing up in northern Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in Houston, um, I was uh, executive chef of a uh, uh, two golf course clubhouses. That was an extension of a four star, four diamond hotel, the Houstonian Hotel Club and Spa. Oh yeah! In '99, uh, we opened Sway, that. Swank, dude! Wow, swank! Uh, All right. <laughs> Uh, You know, whenever I was in in industry, not that we were bringing in carcasses to the amount of farm-to-table restaurants are doing today, but we brought in uh, larger cuts and did a lot of in-house portion cutting and mindful purchasing and mindful uh, practices, inventory control practices, to facilitate lowering a food cost. I mean, at the end of the day, you can cook the greatest food in the world, but... If you cannot control your costs, uh, then that, that leaves you. Sure, sure. You know, um, so that kind of emanated from there. And then when I left uh, the industry, uh, the working industry, to go into the education sector uh, in 2000, I came to uh, Denver to uh, teach at Johnson Oils Denver. And um, by 2003, um, I had kind of positioned myself uh, to take on the meat cutting curriculum. And that same year, I was tasked with being the chairperson for the entire university system of all four campuses right and uh while i was at johnson and wales i kind of started this meat company uh il mondo vecchio salumi some of you may or may not be familiar with our little plight after three years we were kind of closed down after making a decision that we couldn't use nitrates uh, yeah we had a sticking point with the usda and it kept going back and forth and we could never really get anything solid in writing Mm -hmm. um so we decided after two and a half months of not being able to produce Uh, a dry fermented sausage, which that's the thing, we weren't fermenting. We were just sea salt, meat, That's in my name. Vecchia was the old world. Right. Um, So I became uh, much immersed into the meat industry. I partnered in 2004 with Colorado's Best Beef out of Boulder uh, to help them uh, go from not only farmers markets but get them dialed into the food service sector. So I started getting more into the meat industry there. Um, In 2005, I was brought on um, as the chef educational consultant uh, to the American Lamb Board, uh, promoting uh, everything from, you know, various particular cuts to value added cuts and doing educational materials, um, handouts, authoring and scripted a DVD, as well as being on-camera spokesperson. Uh, and I used to travel a lot doing um, uh, to national educational conferences and teach master classes on fabricating and cooking with uh, American lamb, especially here in the heart of Colorado. I mean, this is lamb
0: country. Yeah, it is lamb country. Why, why, why don't we have uh, cheap lamb? Why is... Uh,
2: I mean, it's, it's, it is and lamb country, question. but
0: you kind of have to be a foodie to know that. Yes. I mean, no. it's not something that's commonly known. Like you think of like, you know, steer in Texas. Mm-hmm. There's no Colorado roadhouse. Exactly. Is it,
1: is it for the same reasons that we were talking about with horse meat is that the taste for lamb in the, in the United States is just not as strong as it? Well, that's changed. Um, it, it, has cha- it has changed in recent that, years, but yeah. in general, you know, the mass, the mass uh, population is not totally into lamb. Exactly. Or they're, or they're just not familiar with it. And that, that as well, too. Um, part of
2: it is, you know, you say cost. Um, realizing the difference, and you're probably comparing it to imported lambs, such as New Zealand or Australian. Sure. Um, right off the bat, I can tell you that um, a New Zealand lamb, specifically, uh, the live slaughter weight is at about 95 pounds. Mm-hmm. Here in the States, a live slaughter weight is about 145-pound average. So there's a longer period of time. That it takes to raise that animal to meet that weight as well as along with feed uh, mm-hmm. which costs uh, money and and realize that you know all animals are grass-fed at some point in their life it's the finishing that really uh, Matter, depends on right, that yeah um and, and initially you know the lamb industry here has always been a meat industry and wool was a byproduct new zealand Wool was the main industry. Yeah. Huh. Meat just happened to be the byproduct, and huh. so you take those two things into into account. In particular, the the live weight of the animal at slaughter time. Um, however, there's some transportation things. There's 3,000 miles of frequent flyer miles that uh, imported <laughs> lamb have over yeah. American, um, but also with you know some legislative things that have taken place. Um, you know, there was a, a matter with the wolf. Uh, and coyotes and mm-hmm. predators in general that, you know, Amer- you know a, a coyote or a wolf will kill a lamb just to watch
0: it die for fun. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. you know, Humans uh, can relate to that, I think. Uh, yeah. Like yeah. Johnny Cash, right?
2: <laughs> right, exactly. And there was, there was some matters a couple of years ago um, that didn't allow uh, ranchers, especially that were grazing up in the open lands, up in the you know national forests and things like to that, shoot coyotes man, or wolves. To shoot coyotes right. or wolves, but that was their livelihood. Right. And when you once you lose an animal, you can't you know if a coyote kills it, it's not like you can go send it off to the USDA plant and get it processed <laughs> under a federal inspection. Right. So you've lost that animal, and so there's certain things you know. One being the size of the animal and some of those parameters of getting it to a live proper live slaughterway to fulfill the needs of the certain cuts and such, um, but. Also, those other attributes that the American ranchers are faced with.
1: Yeah. So, so you're telling, so you what you're saying is that uh, the cost of the meat is it depends on how much was put into the animal well, to that, begin with, absolutely. basically, yeah. But yeah, yeah, it, it's the amount, it's the amount of, of fat that they wind up having, or the, the amount of time they have, the
2: musculature, to, the fat development, and
1: and, things along those and lines. so so it, so conversely, does that mean that the cheaper the the cheaper meats. What's, what's what's going on there? What are they doing? How are they getting the cost down so much less you get, expensive? You get what you pay for.
2: <laughs> uh, things like with pork, the pork industry. Um, yeah. They've been looking at, for years, uh, incorporating soy into feed. Okay. Um, yeah, right. Versus corn. Corn's obviously expensive, and there's some other controversial things that come in play with corn. Um, but uh, soy yields a lesser quality fat. It's translucent. Uh, it's not as flavorful. Um, it's really very sad. And a, and a good example would be go look at a, at a pork chop at, say, a Costco or a Walmart uh, right. versus a something that Justin Brunson is doing, right, which is yeah. rocks that are raised by a single family um, in the comparison of the quality of the meat itself and the quality of the fat that's in there, which contributes to flavor.
0: Right. Hmm. So, all right, um, let's hear a little bit about a Cook Street, ah, the school. Because that's, that's where you're at now. Yes, that's, that's my home. Is yeah, it on Cook Street? No. no, it's on Market.
1: That's so lame. <laughs> yeah. I'm so confused now. I'm I have, trying to think of I can't the Sesame find, streets. I was my actually head. confused I when I first was looking into it. I can't, I was, find, I can't find this place. It's yeah. a, I'm on Cook Street. <laughs> actually, I don't even know if there is a Cook Street in Denver. I don't, I don't Oh, know my gosh. Oh, why did I – I shouldn't have said that out loud. Now we're going to have some listener – T- sending me a tweet yeah and, but we're gonna find days, it and take a picture they're yeah. gonna they're get so upset i can't believe you don't Google know yeah. i used to be is. a fan i used um. to live on cook street <laughs> you don't know denver all right anyway i'm sorry please uh, no, no proceed no cook Cookstreet uh,
2: Cook School of Culinary Arts, uh, amazing, unique program, uh, both uh, 15-week professional course. Uh, there's uh, six nights a week that we run a, a recreational course for the enthusiast, mm-hmm. uh, things like culinary date night or specific region or a specific type. We've got a great scotch and whiskey tasting coming up, uh, and we're getting uh, local micro-distiller uh, uh, whiskeys. Wow.
1: Uh, mm-hmm.
2: We've got um, uh, seven um, – gosh – uh, Deer Hammer out of uh, Buena Vista. Uh, there's another gentleman that's going to be joining in a future class out of Colorado Springs, um, and I think uh, they may pull in some others. But you know, there's all those attributes, and then it is uh, Cook Street is also houses um, an extension professional program, the Rocky Mountain Institute of Meat uh, Foundations and Meat Fabrication.
0: Ooh, I like the sound of that. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking. That's I'm my taking radio this voice. Just. <laughs> In the interest of transparency, I'm taking this course.
1: Yes, yeah, we we, we should reveal. Yeah. The 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 I, <laughs> I want to be a butcher. That's Josh yeah, wants to be a butcher.
0: I'm leaving marketing and journalism for good. I'll You're dabble in a it. Jump. I'll dabble in it, but it, it's <laughs> as pertains to meat. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so when I was talking to you earlier, you were mentioning that that you know a percentage of the people that are that are going back to school, mm-hmm. essentially in culinary arts, are um, maybe out of work. Yes. due to the economy, and it's, it's yeah. become like these people like me that are a little bit older mm-hmm. and are going and doing career changes and retraining. So, yeah. I mean, can you speak to that? What kind of who are, who are coming into these classes? Yeah, who's going classes? to these classes? Yeah.
2: Everybody. Yeah.
0: Everybody. I get the gamut
2: um, of professionals in the culinary program, the 15-week culinary program that we have. It's, it's great because it's, the first three weeks is all wine. It's a level one wine certificate that you get, so you go through your parameters of tasting. Then you get in the fourth week through week 15, you're learning more about cooking, cooking methods, uh, specifically a focus on Italian and French, Uh, but then they delve into some of the other regions in Germany and India and things along those lines. Um, But each day, you continue to touch wines. As part of your, you sit down, have three courses. There's usually two wines served that you taste. Um, So the idea is the uh, focus on palate development. Right. Understanding flavors and tastes and how they go together—it's really amazing, and it's nothing like I've ever seen out in, in the education world uh, with Johnson Wales or CIA or any of the other uh, colleges and, and universities and programs. Um, it is very, very awesome—the level of palate development. I mean, by week fourteen, they're brown bagging the wines, and students are naming varietals and naming region and things along those lines. Wow! It's—it's it's, it's awesome. interesting. It is absolutely awesome. Uh, Terry Freeman the. Uh, chief operating officer, um, took a class, a whole hog class. I had left Johnson and Wales and was solely focusing on Ilma Vecchio, and we started this whole hog uh, hoedown series, uh, <laughs> inviting people to, awesome. to come in and uh, take a whole hog class with me. And, and she took a class with me, and then they file, um, uh, they requested another class that be held at their school for their faculty and staff and things along those lines. And then we started talking about you know, m- making a more professionalized program, um, and I already had i had a book proposal fall through uh, with a publisher, and I sat on that book, put it on the back burner, so to say, to kind of simmer slowly, and <laughs> I pulled it back out and um, and turn you know with the experience I had gone through with the USDA and all those other things and opening a plant and, and all those aspects in two thousand and eleven uh, after about a good six to eight months of really getting into the nuts and bolts of taking that book proposal format and putting it more into a formalized curriculum um, with a workbook and associated support materials and the actual you know what would take place in class sure uh, we partnered and we got it approved through the state of Colorado as an accredited uh, course um, as well it's approved for 64 continuing education points with the american culinary federation so if you want to go get your you know certified executive chef status or certified sous chef you know you need education points for that and mm-hmm. this course uh helps out with that you know taking the eight day course
0: <laughs> nice and then we cover
2: the basic you know the basic species uh beef uh veal lamb pork uh, poultry, and then there's a day on basic uh, introduction to basic fresh sausage making, mm-hmm. um, and not just the sausage making part, but the all the fun stuff that goes into it, from you know basic formulations, uh, standards of identity within the USDA. If you want to go that route, it's not like when you're a chef in a restaurant, I can make a special, I can put it on the menu, and I can sell it. Mm-hmm. Well, in the USDA world, I don't have the liberty of doing that unless it meets a standard of identity. A standard of identity is Italian sausage has to have this ingredient, this ingredient, this ingredient, this
0: ingredient. Oh, really? Or or else you're not allowed to call it Italian sausage? Exactly. What if you're doing a variation of Italian sausage? Well,
2: if it falls within the standard of identity, then you can call it. Otherwise, that's... you need to set, send it off to uh, D.C. for a label approval, right. which is a process, and that's one of the things we talk about in the Fresh Sausage class is introducing it to that label application form sure. and how to go about and when when to utilize it. Right. Um, because there's probably a 300, 500-page diatribe of standards of identity for every meat product out there. Wow. Uh, it's wow. pretty interesting.
0: So we're going to take a quick break and listen to some music, and when we get back, we're going to talk about uh... – Butchering and what some people in Denver are doing with meat. Outstanding. In an interesting way. This week's episode is brought to you by Illegal Pete's. On Saturday, March 9th, the Greater Than Collective will host a starving artist showcase at Summit Music Hall. Some amazing Colorado bands like A Tom Collins and Fierce Bad Rabbit will be performing to raise money for their trip to South by Southwest later this month. Tickets are $9.33. Nice. Because it's Ninety-three-three is oh, sponsoring. yeah, ninety-three-three. So it's like a fifty-two okay. eighty thing. It's, <laughs> and, the, and the show starts at seven p.m. Uh, take a quick musical break. This is Denver artist Xmas Lights. That was Island in the Sky by a Denver um, artist. Xmas Lights, i say artist because he's a single guy right now who is looking for a band. Um, I guess contact us. I'll put you in touch with him. If, yeah, email if join, us. Join yeah. join his band. Awesome. Um, we are back with Mark Donatus of uh, Cook Street, Culinary Institute of Arts. We're going to talk about this new school of butchers, but do stick around. We have a giveaway at the end of the show. We're going to give away a Pound of bacon from Denver Bacon Company, which we will also be talking about more in this segment
1: yeah, so so listen listen in at the end, and we'll give you details on how you can win that's right some bacon, yeah.
0: bacon. see this is how we draw you this is how we, we, keep we're, you. we, are, we are we're yeah. keeping
1: you around for bacon
0: that's right, stick around for bacon um so essentially this this new school of butcher I'm, I'm going to let you explain it you can explain it yeah, better well, than I can yeah Mark. what's what's a new but,
1: school? yeah what?
2: The Rocky Mountain Institute of Meat Foundations and uh, Meat Fabrication kind of uh, came from part of a movement. Uh,
0: right. Um, that movement,
2: right. you know, uh, it's been going on for for quite some time, and really formalized in probably two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. There have been a lot of chefs doing. Uh, different capacities of of what this is today for for many years. Um, Marissa Gugiana and Tia Harrison out of the San Francisco area. Marissa uh, was the author of a book, Primal Cuts: Cooking with America's Best Butchers,
0: mm-hmm. was, which you are in. Yes, I'm very
2: grateful and thankful for, yeah. for have, having that had that opportunity alongside uh, people like Tia Harrison of Avendano's Holly Park. Uh, she's also a chef and owner of Sochal in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave, uh, the butcher Bud worth uh, another san francisco veteran out of uh, uh, marina meats and kind of a traveling uh, butcher you have lindy and grundy in los angeles uh, joshua applestone of fleischer's uh, new york manhattan and brooklyn uh, grass-fed and he just came out with his great book he did um, yeah, brunson spent a little bit of time with him as well out in new york for about a month um, and just a, a lot of different uh, butchers butcher chefs from across the country at varying levels um, and what Marissa and Tia did with kind of the Primal School alumni, if you will. Sure, uh, kind of created the Butchers Guild, uh, the ButchersGuild.org, uh, uh, which is more of the younger generation, uh, the more of the cutting edge uh, type butchery chefs. You know, chefs like Justin Brunson, for example, would be a, a great uh, person for that, or Paul Riley with his new Beast and Bottle. Um, you know, Joe uh Pierce down at Euclid Hall uh, and such and things mm-hmm. along those lines. You know the, this whole
1: meat movement, now. right? Yeah.
0: So what? What? Yeah. What, what is they, what's the core of it? Yeah. The what core they, of it is. Yeah. Is, what were they?
1: What's different between this new school and the old school? Gotcha. Coming back to the roots of
2: actually bringing in larger cuts to manhandle if you will um, and <laughs> in, into the you know, into the restaurant or into the in, restaurant into, into, into a restaurant into, into a small marketplace because the mom and pop butcher shops kind of went away I mean you've yeah. still got you know Tim Kovic Meats up off of Washington which is real old school uh, he's got a smokehouse there you've got Edwards Meats out in Arvada which is a phenomenal butcher you know Pete Marzik with his uh, little market and that butcher component there um, there's a, a, The Source uh, that's going to be opening up right. in Rhino uh, uh, Kevin, the meathead, uh, we fondly call him, is kind of <laughs> heading up the meat uh, little 600-square-foot re- retail spot within that. Um, um, you know, we've gone away and industrialized the meat. Processing world, which it has its efficiencies and things like that, but the old styrofoam pack yep. um, that became more centralized with the maxi
1: pad underneath, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and the and the saran wrap, yep. oh, yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. And you've taken that component out of the the grocery stores. Grocery stores used to do a significant amount of, of true cutting of, of, their, own of sure. their own butchering, sure, butchering now, and not in a bad way, but you know, it's more a lot of inventory control. There's still some cutting going on, but not to the level it used to be. Um, and it's just part of convenience and, and moving forward and industrialized nation and all those things. Um, it's strange that in Europe, it's actually flip-flopping. Here in the States, we're going back to those old-school roots of people mm-hmm. wanting to. There's a lot of young people excited about butchery and opening up butcher shops such as yourself. Right. You know, you were talking about that or, or uh, some type of distribution component there. Um, the trend is to get back to our roots we've kind of a lot of people feel you know our generation uh, has lost a a certain amount of of connectedness uh, to our food yes and I think that's part of it Um, uh, classes across the country for butchery are growing in numbers I mean I still I do a lot of recreational classes you know if you have uh, six you know five or six buddies and you want to break down a whole 200 pound hog with me we'll spend four hours together you walk away with all the meat that's the beautiful thing. Yeah, about. yeah. And uh, we have fun. You know, we, we make sausage in those four hours and do a bunch of other things. Um, so that whole thing. And in Europe now, they're kind of going in reverse. They're go- a lot of the smaller mom and pop shops are starting to close down, and they're becoming more industrialized and commercialized. Huh. And I, I hadn't the realized that. Super, super grocery stores have kind of started to to take hold and such. It's really unique, um, not to the capacity that they've done here. There's still always going to be a certain amount of that in Europe, especially in the old world cities and things along right. those lines. Um, but that's kind of part of the, part of the, uh, uh, and it's, and a lot of it, I, I, you know, I, I, I tip my hat to Marissa and Tia and people like Lindy Grundy and those guys and Josh Applestone, just really pushing and keeping the momentum going. Carrie Underly with, uh, beef one Oh one, um, and such myself uh, with the with the state accredited program and ACF approved I, I think we're the only state accredited and ACF approved butchery focused program in the country right now hmm. yeah,
1: so so, so so give us a give us a taste of folks around town different different restaurants in town what what are they doing that's different with this with these larger cuts of meat that you wouldn't get at uh, you wouldn't get anywhere else
2: well, it's not that you wouldn't get them anywhere else. You wouldn't get them to the degree that they've been handled. One, they've been sourced. Typically, they're sourcing and connecting with smaller farms and ranches okay. rather than the bigger uh, corporate uh, entities or boxed beef and things along those lines. So they're trying to provide their customer true total experience and flex their culinary prowess. I mean, you know, as a chef, years ago, you needed to be able to butcher. That was that was a core component, and then you know in the eighties and, and such, everything became convenience. So I, I make a phone call, I can get everything pre-cut individually packaged if I want things along those lines so the controls and the labor force this level of skill Um, now with chefs and and consumers demanding more more know about you know know more about their food be more connected it's kind of a movement of chefs uh, you know flexing their professional prowess and getting back to their true culinary roots Mm -hmm. and being sincere chefs not that buying, you know, pre-cut meats is not sincere. I mean, there's, there's practical applications for that. Sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so I think that there's, there's an awareness and, um, of meat sourcing that, that hadn't previously existed. Mm-hmm. And, and people are coming to it for I, I would see one of three reasons. It's either um, political mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. an anti-industrial yeah. farming kind of way. It's either ethical in the, the life cycle of the animal and trusting the farm and its treatment and or it's aesthetic, which is foodies, because yeah. it's yeah. better meat. Yeah, yeah, right. So does this, I mean, this trend towards, towards consumers desiring this, you know, uh, simpler sourcing of, of meat, is that mm-hmm. something that's trendy? I mean, is it growing? Is, is it growing that's like, is it going to go back? Is it going to sway back to...
1: Do you think people are going to get over it? Yeah. Do you think no, do you think
2: No, I think it's here to stay. I yeah. think it's it's going to be on trend and I think, you know, the dangerous thing always comes with buzzwords. Sustainable, right. local. What does local right. truly mean? I've seen right. a lot of Right. How many miles at, are we well, talking?
0: Exactly. Yeah. You know, 150 is the standard, right? I believe so, about local. 150 200 yeah. approximately.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, and, and and you have to be also mindful of that that whole parameter too is that you know, some things you just can't get within 150 or 200 miles. You know, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Like currently Pomegranates. horse. I mean, if that were the case. Currently horse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pomegranates. You know, we we would have to shut down restaurants for a period of time because certain things were growing because you think of seasonality and local sourcing and things like that so I think there's a happy medium in there somewhere. Right. Um, obviously the pendulum swings to one way or the other but I think there's always going to be a core uh, group of people, uh, chefs that are, are mindful, that are thoughtful um, in in doing those things for themselves personally because there's a personal, I get a personal joy whenever I put a knife to, to a lovely animal flesh. <laughs> um, for lack of better Way of saying it. I'm sorry. I'm so you know. You know I, I
1: won't lie. I'm so excited for the backlash or <laughs> or the upset. The peta. Yeah. The the pita The flip out that's going to happen. Yeah. At least for some of our listeners. Those those of you out there. I'm I'm part time vegan. I don't eat a lot of meat. <laughs> but uh, so just just hang there. It's fine. Just yeah. enjoy yeah. It. it. It is t- respectful though. It, it? is hey, respectful. Absolutely. Not, I mean, it's better. You think about the level of respect that's being given to an animal who's already mm-hmm. died anyway. Exactly. Right. Uh, it, that they're being treated with care that's in a restaurant shit. versus See, a, they're being hacked up yes. uh, as fast as humanly possible mm-hmm. by me, some dude in Texas.
0: Me thinking about about doing this, about becoming a whole animal butcher, I, 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 like, I sometimes worry about the moment when I'm alone with, with a, a whole pig carcass, and it's my <laughs> first time without any guidance because if you <laughs> – if you screw it up, I mean there 's a financial loss, of course, but there 's like this whole pig 's life was wasted, uh-huh. and I just made a pork cut and yep. ruined you know yeah right mm-hmm. there it is you have to honor its life by yes. by really bringing it to the best fruition possible. Mm-hmm. I could talk about this forever, but we do, <laughs> we do need to wrap it up um, and befo- but before we get to the the giveaway, which was from um, Denver bacon company we 're going to give away a pound of bacon. Will you quickly describe what, what Denver Baking Company is doing here Gosh, in Gosh, Denver?
2: Denver Baking Company is
0: really killing it in a good
1: way.
2: Yeah. Um, Chef Justin Brunson and, of course, Eric of uh, Denver Baking Company have uh, – and they've been working on it for a while. Uh, Justin, uh, Chef Brunson started it, uh, at Masterpiece Deli is kind of introducing it and doing it as an in-house, uh, cured and cooked bacon. Right. Um, and then he got to the point probably about, uh, s- roughly six to eight months ago. Um, they've been working with a local processing company to kind of take over the manufacturing side of things on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, they developed a, a lovely recipe. They've, uh, d- uh sourced a, a, uh, pork product, uh, predominantly from Colorado, um, Seaboard Farms, um, that are out. Uh, there's a lot of Eastern Plains farmers that are raising uh, Colorado uh, pork for Seaboard Farms, as well as Kansas, Nebraska, Texas. They're an extremely large company. Um, years ago, they were considered not so in, in such a good light, um, but since they've you know sourced out the expertise of Temple Grandin. Uh, mm-hmm. from our own CSU up the road. Yeah, she's uh, The animal whisperer. I love that woman. She's yeah. like the Julia Child of the meat world. She is. She's, she's so, so I love she's her. She's so special. She is, and, and she thinks like the animals, and yeah. I think that's beautiful. And, you know, Seaboard really worked with her to get her stamp of approval on the humane handling practices. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Um, so I think, you know, Justin has been very mindful in that in his Denver bacon company and has done a tremendous job with that. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's cool for me because I reminisce about when I started Il Monavec it was kind of that same fashion, working with the processor, outsourcing some of the production. Um, and to, uh, So it's really great to see, and I think the product's phenomenal. They're actually working on some other neat things. Um, I've teamed up with the folks uh, to help them uh, through introduce some new products through research and development and some other parameters on the USDA labeling side and, and all that fun stuff, the, uh, the not-so-fun stuff. I mean, there's two things you never want to see being made, sausage and law.
0: Yeah, right. I saw, that's an old Irish. <laughs> exactly. I
2: mean, for me, it was, you know, people asked what I did. I said, well, I uh, chop meat, I season it, salt it, grind it up, and shove it into animal intestines. I hang it in a room for a while <laughs> yeah. and let it dry. And then when it's ready, we package it and, yeah. you know, all that fun stuff. So. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think what they've done with Denver Bacon Company as a whole uh, is absolutely
0: wonderful. Oh, very bacon. W- How do you want to give these away?
1: um let's just have uh, folks comment on this blog on on this uh, podcast uh, go to our website Denverdiatribe.com, find this episode and leave a comment and if we uh, we will we'll take all the people that commented we'll file away your email addresses and choose you at random we've got uh, two five dollar gift certificates to masterpiece delicatessen two of those together gets you a pound of bacon. delicious bacon that's right from denver bacon, denver bacon, bacon company
0: so we're going to move on to love and hate. This is the portion of the show where we love on or hate on something Denver-related. Did you bring a love and hate, Mark? Mm, parking. Parking? Parking. I, yes, parking. <laughs> it's easily one Anything of our most specific, popular right? hates.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you love parking. You love to park. I, I love to park. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs>
0: when you can, right? When
2: I can. Yeah.
1: When I can afford. Yeah, when I get paid. <laughs> uh, and the,
2: and the, uh, no disrespect to the, uh, to, uh, the towing industry, um, <laughs> those vultures, uh, they're like vultures downtown. They, they, they look and they, I mean, I, I was, I had my flashes on, I had a tow truck pull up behind my vehicle and he was eyeballing it. And I was like, he was getting ready to h- hook it up and all. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, I get f-
1: flashes on and all that. I mean, yeah. it's, oh, it's bad. Yeah. yeah it's yep.
2: bad. It gets my goat.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, I've had I've had a bad rash of parking. Usually, I'm pretty I luck out, and I, mm-hmm. it has not been going well for me. I'm I'm going to uh, because we're talking about uh, to meat uh, and those sorts of things right now. I'm gonna I'm gonna love on Arash Market mm. uh, on Parker, uh, oh. great yeah. place. Uh, it's a it's a uh, I think it's Muslim owned, and mm-hmm. uh, yes. they they sell lots of really great lamb products. Mm-hmm. I went in there to go buy some uh, some lamb, and I was like. I, found, I saw up on their board. I was like, oh, that's a, that's a really good price. Yeah. I want that. And they're like, no, no, no. That's the price per pound for the whole whole carcass. The whole yeah. carcass. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, I don't need that much yeah, yeah. for my little dinner party. Uh, so I'm going to love on them. They also have the best feta cheese, in my opinion, in really? the whole city. Mm-hmm. They've got phenomenal uh, French feta and uh, Bulgarian feta. And uh, the French feta is like so good. Amazing. All right. So that, and then I'm going to hate, this is very contradictory because of who we are. I'm going to hate on things named Denver. I'm so <laughs> fucking tired of that name. I'm sorry, Denver Bacon Company. We just plugged you. But yesterday I was meeting up with our co-host, Jared, and he said, let's meet at Denver, blah, blah, blah. And I went to Denver Bicycle Cafe, and he was at Denver Beer Company. And I This is so, so funny. I had this conversation. so sick of it. Just stop naming things Denver. We're, we get it. We love this town. I had this. You're over it. And 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 from now on we are now called the I don't know what diatribe.
0: The, yeah, mile high. Mile, mile no, high. that's worse <laughs> than Denver. That's even worse. I had this, it's funny because I had the same conversation over breakfast at the Denver Biscuit Company on Sunday. <laughs> ah! <laughs> yeah, after you got there because you had gone
1: somewhere else first. Right. Right. Oh.
0: Um, I'm I'm gonna love on my local meat source at uh, Downing and uh, Bruce Randolph Jalisco Carneseria. Ah, orale. Yeah, it's delicious, delicious stuff. And they have you know when you're going there to buy your meat, you should pick up a taco at the, their cart in the parking lot yeah so um well that's all the love and hate we have for this week if you'd like to share a little of your own love and hate please leave us a brief message at 720-282-YELL that's 720-282-9355 our theme music is by tj miller from his extended play ep and our web hosting is provided by bluechannel.com for more information about denver diatribe or any of our guests Check out our website, denverdiatribe.com, or search for Denver Diatribe on Twitter or Facebook. I'm Josh Johnson. On behalf of my co host, Ron Doyle and Mark, well, thanks for listening. Thank you. Have you heard the birds, afterwards, Denver? High average income, we're like spenders. Affordable housing, good money lenders. Low obesity, no need for suspenders. Check